The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this eve, we pray that all beings everywhere may be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering, that all beings everywhere will be content and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity, that all beings everywhere will live in peace. This is our prayer. This is our intention. Faith is the state of being ultimately concerned. It can't be helped. We return through different questions to the same central issue. How do we live fully? How do we live in such a way that the wonder of feeling outfuels the pain of breaking? I'm not really sure. I am only trying myself. Each of us, a tiny will striving to find and ride the universal current without perishing. But faith seems crucial. The ability to inhabit the breadth and depth of our compassion, to know, even in the dark center of our pain, that somewhere out of you there is joy and wonder, that even when we tumble, we are part of a current larger than our own design. This is a hard bit of consciousness to ask for, yet, even failing, faith, the life of concern, is possible. In actuality, the infinite coherence of all things and events continues like a great bottomless stream, and we, like fish, have but one choice, to find and ride the flow. The stream is God, or Tao, or Dharma, and the strength that lifts us when our tiny wills merge with the stream of being is the sacred luminosity we experience as grace. Once in the stream, the life of preparation ends. The life of defense ends. The measuring of individual traits ends. Fear somehow gives way to trust. Control somehow evaporates into surrender. The fish and stream are for the moment one. The sacred moment and God are always the same. There is nothing else to live for. Even the declaration changes, for it is no longer a living for, but a living out. Always the inner out and once out and kept open, the whole flows in. So faith is no more than the willingness and courage 
to enter and ride the stream. The mystery is that taking the risk to be so immersed in our moment of living in itself joins us with everything larger than us. And what is compassion but entering the stream of another without losing yourself? I remember one summer I was at the window when a fly near the latch was on its back spinning, legs furious, going nowhere. My immediate thought was to swat it, but something in its struggle was too much my own. It kept spinning and began to tire. Without moving closer, I took a deep breath and exhaled steadily. My breath, a sudden wind, and the fly found its legs, rubs, rubbed its face, and flew away. I continued to stare at the latch, hoping that someday the breath of something incomprehensible would right me and enable me to fly. No matter where you go, no matter how much you have learned, no matter the events, we return to the singular central issue of our lives. And tonight is about that issue. <coughs> when we talk about getting beyond fear, what we mean is to get beyond ourself. To get beyond that self I call myself. That self I refer to as me or I. That self, which for any reason whatsoever, experiences itself trapped in a kind of what Einstein called optical delusion. That self, which experiences itself as something separate from the rest. Something separate from something larger than itself. So tonight, when I talk about separate from the rest, I'm not just speaking about separate from others, separate from nature, separate from the things we want in our lives. Tonight, I'm talking about the larger picture. Tonight, I'm talking about our interconnectedness and interdependency upon a scheme that was created and began long before this form existed. And if we never really answer the central question of our lives, which is, what is this life? What is the meaning of this life? What is the purpose of my life? We find ourselves entrapped in the experience of fear, which perpetuates the illusion of separation. So we're going to take a look at a different way of approaching fear in our lives, which is always at the root of our struggle. Whenever we find ourselves discontented, dissatisfied, worried, argumentative, angry, it is a guarantee 
that if we follow the trail, it will always lead us back to our fear, which is rooted in the unresolved issue of our lives. Who am I? What am I? And what is this all about? Really all about. This optical delusion that Einstein referred to that perpetuates the illusion of separateness convinces us that you and I exist as separate individual entities in the universe with our own private agendas. And we find ourselves certainly possessed with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we pursue that happiness and we pursue life never experiencing the liberty because the source of our freedom is not in that small agenda of ours, not in fulfilling it. Often I talk about how, as a young man, I was absolutely convinced at the age of eight, my agenda was that the key to my happiness was the possession and ownership of a red fire truck I saw in a store window one day that shot water from its cannons. And my father got that for me eventually after arguing, arguing not to. One Christmas it showed up finally, and I was ecstatic, and my life was perfect. And then that all changed, you see. And the, uh, and the truck doesn't work for me today. <laughs> so this illusion of separateness, we often talk about it in just one area. Tonight I want to expand that area to mean that this optical delusion Einstein referred to keeps us stuck in the illusion of separate from the universe. We tend to live our lives as if my life has to do with the stuff in my life. It has to do with the things in my life that I'm doing, the places I'm going, the people I'm with, my immediate circle of family and friends, um, my politics, my religious beliefs, all of that. And I talk about this often this way with the monks. All of that and then dead. All of that and then dead. All of that and then dead. And that dead part is constantly trying to remind us that all of that in the big scheme of everything is nothing, is dust in the wind, as the song goes. And so, how do we really get beyond our fear? And all of the great masters, all of them, from Moses, the prophets, Jesus, Buddha, all of them have said the same thing about this. All of them has told us the path and the way. And we need to merely wake up to a better understanding of that. So getting beyond fear has to do with getting beyond this self with its ideas about itself and the world around it. This self that feels and thinks and wants and desires. And so we're going to take a look at the Buddhist approach to achieving that tonight. And it has to do with what is called the Bodhisattva's way. It has to do with a state of mind, a consciousness, awareness 
of this larger reality as the guiding force behind everything we do. And so we're going to take a look at that path and what it means and how we can achieve that in our daily living. So if my iPhone does not die on me, like the iPad did, we'll get through it with or without uh, the direction. What do we mean by bodhisattva? The word bodhi means enlightenment, the state of consciousness within each of us which pervades the whole universe, devoid of all desires toward dualistic approaches to living one's life, and endowed with wisdom and all loving, kind, compassionate, and benevolent qualities. This Bodhi mind is your true nature, your true self. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha declared that all beings possess enlightenment, possess the seeds of the wisdom of the universe, possess love and compassion and understanding and patience and joy and happiness. We are made of that stuff. It is not something we need to pursue after. It is not something we need to go in search of. It is within us. And our work is to realize it for ourselves. And that the meaning of our lives, when I talk about it this way, which is to live our lives authentically, means, or what I mean by that, is to live as that, to live as a Buddha in the world, to live as an enlightened being in the world, rather than, as George Bernard Shaw referred to so many of us, these feverish little clods of ailments and grievances complaining that the world is not devoting itself to making us happy, you see. Constantly in pursuit of the next fire truck and the next this and the next that and the next that because we find ourselves again entrapped in that delusion of separateness from a meaning and purpose of all existence that exists as one. That is to say that the purpose of the stars in the heavens and the purpose of your life is the same thing that the purpose of the trees and the pine lands and the purpose of everything you do on a daily basis is the same thing, is meant to be about the same meaning and the same purpose. To live as a Buddha in the world, as this uh, explanation states, is to move away from dualistic living, to move away from a life that we'll get in more detail in a moment about, whereby, again, we find ourselves entrapped in this never-ending battle of right, wrong, good, bad, happy, sad, and so forth. And when you take a look at that battle, the battle is always about the content of our lives. We don't complain about anything but the content of our lives, you see. We don't judge anything but that. We don't qualify anything but that. And we call that duality in Buddhism. And duality is the mother of suffering. 
Duality is the mother of suffering. Sattva refers to someone who has courage and confidence and who strives to realize their own inner enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Those who have this authentic, spontaneous, sincere wish for, all, for the ultimate benefit of all beings are called bodhisattvas. So a bodhisattva, which you need to also know in Buddhism, believes that we are all bodhisattvas. Some of us are realized bodhisattvas. We have come to realize that our purpose in life is about something larger than our lives. And some of us are unrealized bodhisattvas. But just like everything else in the forest exists to benefit the forest, just like everything else in the universe exists to be part of an ecosystem, if you will, to support life on Earth, we too are a part of nature. And we too are a part of that system. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said, the reason we suffer is because we are ignorant of that fact and because we ignore the fact that we are part of that. And that the key to cessation from suffering comes from the realization of that fact and learning how to live your life and make life choices, create lifestyles that support that fact. Some people think of the spiritual life, perhaps the life of a monk, as a life of sacrifice. Nothing can be furthest from the truth. Certainly there are things you give up, but you don't give them up as a sacrifice. Because what is really going on in my life, for example, is that the choices I make and the decisions I make are about supporting that life, are about supporting that truth in my life. So when I make changes in my life, it's not about sacrificing. It's just like, you know, more and more the dialogue around eating well and, and well-being and health, more and more the language is changing from dieting to just eating right. You see, and this notion of just eating right, eating the right foods, eating the right way is about this existing paradigm that is already there to support the body to be alive and vital and so forth. We can transfer that example to what I'm talking about now. Our lifestyles are central to the results in our life. Fear, which perpetuates this experience of separation, convinces us, wrongly so, that the cause of our unhappiness, the cause of our dissatisfaction, has to do with what's going on out in the world. The enemy is not out here. The enemy is within. And if we never conquer the enemy within, we are never going to be ready for the battlefield. So the life of the Bodhisattva is a life of living in harmony with our true nature, our true meaning for life, and our true purpose for life.
Through cultivating the wisdom mind, they direct their minds toward the way of enlightenment and through nurturing their inherent compassion, compassion they naturally increase their concern for all beings everywhere. This sincere wish for the full realization of one's inner enlightenment for the sake of others is what we call bodhicitta, a spontaneous wish to attain enlightenment motivated by great compassion for all sentient beings, accompanied by a falling away of the attachment to the illusion of an inherently existing self. And it is the starting point on the path. So, to begin, one must have the desire to begin. One must have the desire to know the fullness of life. And by the fullness of life, I mean, again, the true meaning and purpose of our lives. And I have a sense that sometimes most people I've been off, uh, you know, uh, the other day I was, well, several weeks ago, I was out with one of the other monks and they said, maybe you can bring peace uh, to this group, Roshi. And I said, no, they're not interested in peace. They're interested in pleasure, you see. And what I meant by that is, again, our motivations in our spiritual practices in the world today tend to be as convoluted as the world that is not spiritual, if you will. In that, again, there must be a desire to know the truth in order for the truth to inhabit us in a way that it is constantly liberating us from our fear. So the first gate, if you will, for the bodhisattva the first gate to pass through has to do with a sincere desire to fully understand by cultivating the wisdom within us. Now, I said a few moments ago, the Buddha taught that you and I already possess all the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the universe. We possess the wisdom of the stars. We possess the wisdom of that life force that keeps this whole thing going. It exists within us, it is running within us, it is operating within us. An example I often enjoy using is that right now, white blood cells are doing a job in your body to keep you alive. And they're not thinking about anything. They are inherently wise and responding to that wisdom. So each of us possess this inherent wisdom. What is needed is a lifestyle that is about cultivating that wisdom. We need to refocus our attention to the cultivation of wisdom. In Buddhism, once again, when, it, when the question is, what is the highest path uh, to attainment? It is prajnaparamita, the path of wisdom, the path of wisdom, cultivating wisdom, which is the knowledge and understanding of the meaning and purpose of life in the universe. And so for the Bodhisattva, their lifestyle becomes a means and everything in their lifestyle. You often hear me say, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live like a monk. And to live like a monk is to cultivate or create a lifestyle that nurtures these inherent qualities. You know, when we talk about taking care of ourselves, 
When people say, I'm going to go take care of myself today, usually they go to a spa, you say. And there's nothing wrong with that. I wish I could get to one sometimes, okay? And ignore that <coughs> the stuff that needs to be nurtured and taken care of are these qualities that we inherently possess. Loving kindness. We need to learn how to nurture loving kindness within ourselves, for ourselves, and for others. The same with compassion. The same with patience and understanding. We need to do the work of that. And much of that is the work of meditation. The sincere wish for the full realization of one's inner enlightenment is the driving force, is the motivation, is the intention, without which nothing is possible. Without which nothing is possible. So this is what Jesus meant when he said, many are called but few are chosen. Because we all want to be happy, but as he experienced in his days, as the Buddha did, as I do today, when it comes down to doing the work, you know, people come to Monas, come to Pine Wind and they, they, want, they want the truth. And then you say, well, here's the truth. And they say, well, maybe next time. You're saying. And then they say, that Zen wasn't for me. No, you weren't for the truth. You weren't for that Zen. And that's a difference. By developing a better awareness of one's inner enlightenment and what enlightenment is, one understands not only that there is a goal to accomplish, but also that it is possible to do so. Driven exclusively by the desire to help all beings, one thinks for their sake as well as their own, I must attain enlightenment. Once again, the driving force for the Bodhisattva is this deep desire to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be uh, benevolent toward all beings, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. The, um, a week ago, when I got real sick again, uh, I had gotten real sick like I do. When I get sick, I get real sick. <clears throat> and so I went to the doctor, and the doctor did what he always does, sent me for an x-ray. And that morning when I went for the x-ray, I was just so weak and so tired because I hadn't slept for two nights straight um, and so forth. So <clears throat> when I got to the waiting room of the uh, <coughs> excuse me, imaging company, can you pour me glasses? When I got to the waiting room of the place to take the x-ray, I sat and waited, and I looked around at the other people in the room. And you're going to know I was feeling really bad, and I was consumed by feeling really bad. And my thoughts were primarily you know, focused on how bad I was feeling. I was weak, I was fever, and everything else and so forth. But as I took the time to just sit and step outside of my thoughts about myself, I began to look into the faces of the other people in that room. And my heart swelled up. My eyes filled with tears with the thought of how many people there too were sick and were in pain. And there was, some, there was this one big guy. And he was big. Probably could have knocked me on my butt with his finger and so forth. But he was sick 
and you could see he was sick and he was, you know, in pain. And when I moved into that space of the realization of there's so much sickness, I remember calling Mitsumiko on the phone after I left because I promised her I would. I actually, that's good there. I actually cried saying to her, there's so much suffering right now, so much suffering. And it moves you into that place where I must attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. We're going to talk about that as a possibility. <clears throat> the Buddha guaranteed that everyone who steps into the path, sincerely devoted to keep that fourth vow, which we will talk about at the end of the night, however endless the Buddha way is, I vow to follow it, attains enlightenment, attains the realization of their enlightenment by stepping into that path. So once again, the motivating force that gets us beyond our fear, that gets us beyond ourself, is I must attain enlightenment for myself and all the many beings. That is the purpose of my life. The meaning of my life is to live in harmony with my true nature, which I call living authentically. The purpose of my life is to live in harmony with my true nature for the benefit of all the many beings, to be of service to others, to be helpful. We live in a culture that contributes in major ways to the mental fragmentation, disintegration, distraction, decoherence, and discontentment most people experience day to day in their lives. If we ever expect to find the solution to this paradox, we need to stop looking for it in all the wrong places. So I often say to people that I, the culture we live in, the society we live in, is not conducive for happiness and well-being. And that's a primary lesson to get. And yet we tend to continue to look for our happiness and well-being in that culture. We need to stop looking for the solutions to our happiness, the solutions, I mean, to our unhappiness and discontentment and the fear in our lives in the source of that fear in our lives. So the world we live in and owning that and uh, renouncing that, renunciation is a huge part of the path for the bodhisattva. The renunciation of the world of greed, the world of hatred, the world of separation and division is essential. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said. No man can live in that world, support that world, and expect to find peace within themselves. The ancient Zen masters used to say, a day of lying and pilfering, meditation will not cure, you see or yoga, or anything else. Oh, there's my baby picture again. <laughs> Surest way to have your life go on the way it always has is to keep doing it the way you always have. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. And that says it all. The work is within me. 
The work is always within me. No matter what is going on in the world, the work must first begin within me. When Gandhi said, be the peace you want the world to be, you must be the peace you want the world to be. You see, you must find it within yourself first. You must establish it within yourself first. If you want the world to be more loving than you perceive it to be, you must be loving and so forth. So the work is always beginning and ending with me. You are the Alpha and the Omega. We cannot always control what happens to us in life, but we can control how we respond to what happens to us. I think some people's frustration that often leads to surrender and giving up has to do with the fact that we don't own our power, that we are always trying to change what we cannot change, and that we are always trying to control what we cannot control. So one of my earliest lessons as a father was something mothers with children were telling me constantly. In order to raise your daughter, always remember, pick, your right pick the right battles, okay? Pick the ones you can win, okay? And I have a, you know, when I heard that, I said, well, that's very spiritual because the same is true in our spiritual efforts. We become frustrated. We become uh, so tired out, sometimes even to the point of being jaded because we're trying to change something we cannot change. And like it or not, and I know today was a big day of protesting again all around the country, you can't change the world by trying to change the world. You can change the world by changing yourself. And that is where it begins and ends. We must first be the peace we want the world to be in order to bring peace to the world. If we don't have it here, there's nothing that's going to establish it out here. Here's where the work begins. Most people live by their desires or karma. That's what the expression gasho nambopo means. Gasho are the obstructions to practicing the way caused by our unwholesome and unskillful actions in the past. Bampo me simply means ordinary human being. That is, one who lives by karma or desires. Our actions are dictated by our karma. We are born into this world with our desires and may live our lives just by reacting or responding to them. In contrast, is Gancho no Bosatsu, or Bodhisattva, who lives by vow. So, these are Tibetan terms that describe, again, the human state of mind. So what is being said here is this. And this is the beginning. This is like spirituality 101 in Zen. Dogen said that Zen is the study of the self. And when you begin to study the self, he said, one of the things you discover is that we are consumed and obsessed. We live our lives, as it is stated in this statement, we live our lives 
according to our feelings and our desires and our cravings. Our lives are about appeasing our feelings and emotions, appeasing this egocentric part of ourselves. Ordinary beings live their lives by their desires or karma. So most of us are happy because we feel happy. But what if there's a happiness that is void of feeling, not requiring feeling happiness? Monks are trained to live with a blissful mind, even with a 104-degree fever. Okay? So, we need to know the difference between living our lives reactionary, where we are always reacting to the <coughs> excuse me, circumstances and situations showing up in our lives. We are reactionary beings. Sometimes I compare it to being firemen. We are all firemen constantly waiting for the bell to ring and going and putting out the fire. And then we return back to the firehouse and we hang out for the next bell and so forth. This is not the enlightened life. When we live our lives out of our desires, out of our feelings, driven by only our desires, driven only by our karma, our lives are not our own. We are nothing more than a machine, stimulated, reacting, stimulated, reacting, stimulated, reacting. <coughs> Buddhism teaches us that the enlightened way of living first begins with owning that fact. My life, and I'm going to say it right between the eyes, my life is about my feelings and what I want. Period. And this is not a condemnation of anyone. This is a necessary realization to begin a path of spiritual practice. To begin to notice how egocentric I really am. That what I bring to the beginning of my spirituality is my desires, is what I want. Make me feel better. Make me feel more peaceful. If you've been listening so far, the context for the Bodhisattva is for all the many beings, which is constantly a, which is a context that is constantly removing us from ourselves into our larger self by being more concerned, not <coughs> excluding yourself, but yourself as part of a whole, and how your part of that whole affects the whole and how the health of that whole affects your health. Any questions so far? I'm going to take a break. The, example, the uh, thing about looking in the wrong places um, brings to mind a, a really, really wonderful uh, Sufi story about a lady who's searching and searching and searching under the street light at night and a man comes by and says can I help you? You seem to be frantic. I dropped my car keys. I can't find my car keys. So they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and finally he says to her, I don't, I don't keys. Exactly where were you when you dropped your car keys? And she said I was down the block over there. <laughs> and he said so why are you looking here? And she said because this is where the light is. <laughs> 
Yeah. 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 We lost our car keys in the dark. We need to be searching in the darkness of our lives. We need to begin with our ship before we talk about the world's ship. It seems to be a popular word this week, so I thought I'd use it. <laughs> Anyone else? Thank you, Jamal. I was reading a version. I was reading um, uh, "Make It Now" by Richard Rohr, and I came to a, a place where he said that um, Christ was non-dualistic in all his teachings, and that's where Christianity seems to have missed the. In, in going forward, has missed the point of things in insisting on duality, insisting. Yeah. Yeah. The path of the bodhisattva is single-mindedness. For the bodhisattva knows only one way, even if the sun were to rise in the west. You see? And we need to move back to, and that's where the center is. Okay? We need to move away from the right and away from the left to the center. And the center is where the path is. And we need to be single-minded about this. And we'll talk more about this in a few moments. But when we are driven solely by our desires and our karma, we can only be dualistic. Because if I'm being nice because I feel good, that's one moment. And then tomorrow, I'm not feeling good, and you call me and I say, what do you want? Okay, you see? And that doesn't sustain relationships either, which I'll talk about in February at that seminar. Okay? So, yeah, we need to get back into the center in all the religions, in all the spiritual approaches. Okay? It's never either or for the bodhisattva. It's never either or. You need to give up the notion that freedom has to do with choices. You are not free until you have no choice. Janis Joplin said it a little differently. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, you see, or to gain, you see. And we need to stop playing this gaining and losing game because everybody loses, okay? Everybody loses. Anyone else? Thank you. This is the central piece of it. The life that flows through each of us and through everything around us is actually all connected. To say that, of course, means that who I really am cannot be separated from all the things that surround me or to put it another way, all sentient beings have their existence and live within my life. So needless to say, that includes even the fate of all mankind. That too lies within me. Therefore, just how mankind might truly live out its life becomes what I aim at as my direction. This aiming 
or living while moving in a certain direction is what is meant by vow. Even the fate of mankind exists within me. This is why the Son of Man comes to pay for the sins of all, to be the sacrifice for everyone. This is why the Buddha declares on the day of his enlightenment, all beings are awake now. All beings are awake. This is why the Bodhisattva takes the vow to reincarnate into the life of samsara again and again until all sentient beings have been liberated. It has never been and it is not and it never will be just about my salvation. It is about the salvation of all the many beings. The fate of all mankind, too, lies within me. The fate of all mankind, too, lies within me. Everything I think, everything I say, everything I do matters. Because everything I think and say and do is connected with everyone else. Is connected with the farthest stars in the heaven and the person right next to me in this room right now. How I behave, how I conduct myself, the money, that, how I invest my money, my time, my energy matters. Matters. And we need to learn to slow down and get our priorities straight. We need to align our priorities with the truth. Not Buddhist philosophy, not a religious belief, but proven also in science that everything is interconnected. Therefore, what I do here affects you over there and vice versa. To live my life as a vow is a very different and extraordinary way of living. All of us in this room, myself included, are ordinary human beings. The Buddha was an ordinary human being. Jesus was an ordinary human being. The prophets, Moses, all of these characters, ordinary human beings that had one thing in common that separated them from the rest in this way. They chose to live extraordinary lives. To live an extraordinary life is to step out of the bureaucracy of ego, which is about living out of my desires and my karma to living my life as a vow, as a vow. In other words, it is the motivation for living that is different for a bodhisattva. Ordinary people live thinking only, only about their own personal narrow circumstances connected with their desires. In contrast to that, a bodhisattva, though undeniably still an ordinary human being like everyone else, lives by vow. So the question we need to ask ourselves is what is really motivating us in our lives? What is motivating, in our motivating us in our pursuits? What is motivating our choices and our decisions? Do we consider, for example, when we purchase things that made by corporations that is poisoning the environment, 
even though we may like those products, how they still are poisoning the environment and how we perpetuate that poisoning by our purchase. Do we consider, again, how our behavior in, at our own particular addresses extends out throughout the entire neighborhood? Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do has a universal effect, has a universal effect. And again, how can we talk about caring about the world when we don't get this? When we don't get this? Peace on earth begins at home. Creating an enlightened society begins at home. It begins with me. So what motivates the Bodhisattva is to live his or her life not for themselves alone, but for all beings everywhere, making choices in consideration as to how those choices harm or support life on earth, and so forth. I love this man and this quote. I have one life and one chance to make it count for something. I am free to choose what that something is, and that something I have chosen is my faith. Now, my faith goes beyond theology and religion and requires considerable work and effort. My faith demands, this is not optional, my faith demands that I do whatever I can, wherever I am, whenever I can, for as long as I can, with whatever I have, to try to make a difference. <coughs> there are hundreds of versions of the Bodhisattva's vow out in the world. We're going to read one of them at the end of the night. But this too is a version of the Bodhisattva's vow. But what strikes me as I have read this a hundred times by Jimmy Carter is the part that I bolted. My faith goes beyond theology and religion. When our spirituality is only about our belief systems, it tends to break down at the most difficult times. So my faith, he says here, is my conviction. It has to do with my gut. It has to do with my sense of who I and you truly are. And he says, and this is the part that I abhor the modern presentation of spirituality in our society about, that sells Mick Enlightenment, you see, <laughs> that talks about spirituality as a way of feeling better or spirituality as a way of attaining wealth and material things and so forth. Because real spirituality requires considerable work and effort. I've been at this almost 43 years now, and it still requires considerable work and effort every day, especially when I'm not feeling well, because the show must go on. I get off when dead. That's it. Your faith or your conviction leaves you with this is not optional. Once again, until you move away 
from the notion that freedom has to do with having choices to where freedom is when you know you have no choice. You are not truly free until you stand up and take a position in the most oppositional moment, you see, to where you have no choice in your mind to do that. Pema Chodron wrote a great piece in a chapter of one of her books about this when she talks about before you can embark on the spiritual journey, you need to eliminate all exit routes, mm -hmm. okay? Because it is human nature. We are conditioned. It's actually cultural nature, not human nature. It is, we are conditioned by our culture that if we have an, a, a way out, we'll take it, you're saying. So again, it doesn't work until you have no choice, until you make up your mind. There is no escape this time. There is no exit this time. A couple of examples of this that I like using often um, was when I watched Phil Donahue years ago when he had his talk show with, uh, again, um, Steve Allen and Audrey Meadows. And um, there were two other comedian couples there too, but I can't recall their name. And <clears throat> what they all had in common was that they had all been married once, divorced each other, and then remarried later on in life. And when they remarried, they ended up staying together till death do they part. And Phil had asked the, the group, you know, what they attributed that to why the second time they were able to achieve that. And it was Audrey Meadows who, who answered it for the group, and she said, well, for Steve and I, we decided that this time divorce was not an option. That no matter what showed up in the relationship, and these are my words that I talk about in the relationship seminar next month, that whatever shows up in the relationship doesn't show up as oppositional to the relationship but rather shows up as an opportunity to grow and to learn from each other and to love each other more. So you see, our fear teaches us that the difficult times are times to run. It is primordial conditioning that whenever we are confronted with a fearful challenge to either fight, flee, or paralyzed, you see. But for the Bodhisattva, there is a fourth choice. And the fourth choice is, as Pema Chodron continues to write in the same chapter, is to lean into the pain, to lean into the difficulty, to walk into the fire rather than to run from it, and to experience it and know that you are greater than the fire, that you are. This is the third mantra that my daughter, since, she's been able to, since she was able to talk, recites every night before she goes to bed. It's the third of four mantras I gave her to do. You are capable, but you don't discover your capability to meet every challenge, to truly be loving, even in the most difficult circumstances, unless you try it, unless you engage it. And so my faith requires, and this is not optional, my faith demands, and this is not optional, that no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, I will respond, which is different than react, with this vow I have taken, which we will look at in a few moments.
of the Bodhisattva. As Bodhisattvas, all aspects of life, including the fate of humanity itself, live within us. It is with this mindset that we work to discover and manifest the most vital and alive posture that we can take in living out our life. So the mindset of the Bodhisattva is, again, that in all areas of my life, my personal life, this person talking to you here, in all areas of my life, every area of that life, everything I do within that circle, if you will, affects the entire universe. Therefore, all aspects of my life, I work to bring into harmony with the intention to be a benefit to all beings everywhere, to be a benefit to all beings everywhere. I live my life and every aspect of my life. The mindset is to work to discover, to work to understand, to work to gain a better perspective of what is needed and wanted in order to produce that. The four Bodhisattva vows. Creations are numberless. I vow to free them. We recite it this way here at Pine Wind. However innumerable all beings are, I vow to love them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. However inexhaustible desires are, I vow to extinguish them all. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. However immeasurable the truth is, I vow to master it. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. However endless the way is, I vow to follow it. Can anyone tell me what all four of those vows have in common? What is so about those four promises, those four vows, every one of them. It's so about each one of them. I'm easy. There is no choice to vow. That's true, but that's not the answer. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. All four of those vows are impossible for ordinary people. They were written by the ancients that way. The ancients and masters handled the whole question of doubt and faith real easy. They cut it off at the start because human beings were very much alike back then. So they would tell their students, here's how you train. Muster up a great doubt and do it. Okay? Doubt it all. Expect to fail. And don't. Expect obstacles that you are not going to be able to overcome and overcome them. 
When you eat off more than you can chew, chew it. This is the Bodhisattva's way. It is not about right or wrong. It is not about failure or success. It's about sustaining a motivation to keep going and to keep your promises and to keep your word no matter what. The Bodhisattva also understands that failure has an effect in the world. When I, you know, sometimes I say there are days in my life I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people. That's the nice way of saying it. I read it differently on the internet the other day. Um, it went something like this. It said something like, um, I am really trying to be kind to to everyone, but some of you fuckers are really making it difficult. <laughs> so, <clears throat> it's like that. I don't work at this because I think it will work. I work at this because I said I would. You keep your word no matter what. You keep your word no matter what. Back to something we were talking about a moment ago when I use the example of Pema children, another thing that I often tell people is that when I was growing up, my father used to tell me about how in his days, uh, <coughs> in his town, and I would go there in the summers and see this to be true, they didn't lock doors. They, to this day, you know, until my aunt died recently, you could go to my aunt's house and walk right into her house and what have you. And he would talk about how there were no such things as written contracts and all and he would always say the same thing, a man's word was his bond. You shook on it, and you knew it was going to get done. Today, I say that a man's word is equal to his excuses. And we need to stop making excuses fact, you see, or truth. And we need to make our word truth. We need to make our promise truth. So the first Bodhisattva vow says, Human beings are innumerable. The world is made up of innumerable personalities, innumerable stories, 10,000 stories in the naked city, innumerable reasons for people to be happy or not happy, innumerable reasons for the problems that we face and the challenges we must you know, face and correct and so forth. But so what? For every one of those beings I come in contact with, I vow to act lovingly. I vow to act with patience. I vow to act with kindness. One of the exercises uh, I do when I'm just sitting and waiting in a public area is I watch my mind on how it sees an object and the first thing it goes to. And so you need to know that I was, again, raised in a Sicilian culture, an Italian culture, and beauty was a thing. It was central. And so I was trained at an early age to notice beauty. Okay? So what I've been doing lately in, in my own training is noticing how when I spot an object, a beautiful woman, my mind goes to beautiful. And then it goes to not beautiful, 
or it goes to beautiful or not beautiful, beautiful. And when I notice that, I use my breath to settle back down in, quiet that conversation of beauty or no beauty, and now look. And it's all beautiful in its own way, you see. And so the promise is, whatever the person looks like, however the person may be action, acting, whatever the person may believe, especially if it's different from my own, I promise to be loving and kind toward them, even when it hurts, even when I rather just pop them, you see. And I get those feelings, you see. I'm an ordinary human being, you see. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. So one of the errors that people often bring to their spiritual effort, or their practices, is the notion that all, one day those thoughts are going to stop flowing and those feelings are going to stop doing that. And I tell them, you're right, when you're dead. You see, that's when they stop. So the second vow says to us, thoughts have a life of their own. Feelings have a life of their own. They're mechanical in nature. They have nothing to do with you. If you are doing the thinking, stop thinking. If you are doing the feeling, stop feeling. So one of the things you get to do when you really train here at Pine Wind is you get to understand the true nature of feelings and emotions summarized in a general way, they have a life of their own. And they're operating within us all the time all from that life. You have nothing to do with them. I am not the thinker of the thoughts, and I am not the emoter of the feelings. Until I grasp them and attach myself to them and become them. So, the second vow says to us, every time we'll call them for the sake of the conversation tonight, a negative emotion surfaces. I vow to respond to that in the same way, by promising to act loving and kind. So even if I don't feel that way towards you, you, <coughs> you can trust that I will be that way towards you. You can trust that I will break bread with you and that I will treat you that way and so forth. So, however inexhaustible desires are, I vow to extinguish them all. Means, I don't live my life from my desires. So when desires surface, it's kind of like, thank you, but no thank you. And I keep my vow. I live my life from my vow, from my promise as a monk. The third one, Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. However immeasurable the truth is, I vow to master it. Now, this is another problem in both religion and spirituality. In Buddhism, it is emphatic that nothing is to be held, not even the Dharma teachings, as the final conclusion. That there is no dogma and that there is no doctrinal belief system that is absolute, 
that has ever been written in the sutras or any other theological book in Buddhism to be held as absolute. This is where the cultivation of wisdom comes in. What might be necessary now in a particular circumstance or situation may not work in the next one. And only wisdom can determine that for us. Only a wise person, you know, there's, there's that universally known story of King Solomon, how he responded with wisdom to a problem that <coughs> had no fact basis to make a legal decision on. And so he, through his wisdom, spoke to the hearts of these two women who claimed to be the mother of this one child and threatened to cut the baby in half. And the mother who was the real mother obviously th you know, threw her body over the baby to protect her while the one who was not her mother still pleaded for the baby's life. He appealed to the heart, which is the throne of wisdom. When we talk about nurturing wisdom, we need to be nurturing our heart wisdom. And there's a lot of work going on in medical science and quantum physics now about the uh, intelligence of the heart, how it has its own consciousness and its, its own intelligence it operates from. Well, for centuries, the teachers and sages have been talking about the cultivation of wisdom. The Japanese call the place of wisdom kokoro, the heart within, which is the title of my book. So when we talk about nurturing wisdom, rather than just the body and the body parts, we need to be about the business of learning how to nurture our heart knowledge, our intuitiveness, and so forth. And so when we say, however immeasurable the truth is, I vow to master it, it has to do with, again, an approach to open mind, with open-mindedness, an approach to what Zen, particularly Suzuki Roshi, was coined to say, even though it was said long before him, with beginner's mind. In every situation, we don't bring to the situation a conclusion. Most of us, and you learn about this in the seminar next month on relationships when we talk about communication, the secret to skillful and effective communication is what? Anyone? Listening. listening. Mm -hmm. The secret to listening is open-mindedness. Most of us, when we are thinking we're listening to someone, we are actually preparing an answer even before they finish talking to us, you see, which means that we're not open to what they're telling us. We've concluded already what needs to be said here. And this <coughs> vow about mastering the truth has to do with openness, being open to the moment, to stand in that place and time and circumstance in a way, in equanimity, not just bringing a conclusion to what is needed. The fourth vow, the the awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. We say, however endless the way is, I vow to follow it. Again, has to do with the vow of staying on the path no matter what. No matter what. It doesn't matter. 
I can't do this anymore. Then you do it. I say, muster up a great doubt, the master said, and then do it. So my vow is not until you trigger me and I get sick and tired of you, Roshi, and now I'm out of here. No, my vow is you trigger me, I get angry, we talk about it, we work it out, we move on. That's like in any relationship, you're saying. It's not about, I don't have time, <coughs> my, my schedule has changed at work and everything. No, it's not about that. People say to me, why do you get up at 3.30 in the morning? Because everything I have to do in the course of the day requires that I do because I vowed to sit and meditate in order to prepare myself to meet the challenges of the day. You see? So I tell people, stop looking for time to meditate. You're never going to find it. The Bodhisattva looks for nothing. The Bodhisattva does not look for, the, for anything to live his or her life as a Bodhisattva. They make his or her life the life of a Bodhisattva. You know what I'm and this is what we mean by the four vows. If our words begin to mean nothing, then all we are left with are excuses and alibis and lies. More lies and better lies. I'm saying. If our words mean nothing, then that's all we're left with. For the Bodhisattva, the word in the beginning creates it all. Any questions? Question I speak? Hmm. The other night we were having a discussion and, and uh, uh, a couple of myself and a couple of guys and uh, the one gentleman said that uh, we must earn wisdom and the way he put it when he was talking about following this the following the path the path of the bodhisattva and just the way that he had put it in this that as we grow that we earn this wisdom through our through our practice you know and it just the, I guess just the way he worded it like that really struck me is that um, that uh, as we stay with this and we we continue to look and we continue to practice that though, even in those tiniest little bits we start to earn this wisdom and we start to earn this uh, this deeper inside of ourselves and what some, hopefully what this is trying to say you know but that we can really earn that. And and because what is again, if you've been listening from the start of tonight and listening to me for forty some years, listening to the Buddha Dharma for twenty five hundred years, it is a it, it appears to be a kind of earning of it, but what is really going on is that the wisdom is already within you, and the more you stay at this, the more you do the work, because the work is not about gaining. The work is about stripping away the barriers that have prevent us from that wisdom to surface within us. You know as well as I do, particularly in the practice of meditation, long hours of sashin, for example, there is a stripping away that goes on, okay? Layer after layer of that ego in the center of that ego is where the wisdom lies. So the more we chip at it, I like um, um, 
Oh, my mind. I'm sorry. It's either drugged up from the medicine they've given me or just the illness. But the, um, he, Cohen. Cohen. Alan Cohen. Cohen. Yeah. Alan. The singer. No, Leonard. Leonard. Leonard Cohen. I like Leonard Cohen's, you know, image of it in his song about, you know, the chipping away, okay, and the light gets in, you see. It's more like the light comes out. The more and more we chip away this egocentric shell that we have found ourselves living in for a long time, that light starts to shine. And, you know, I talk about enlightenment this way. There's a natural surfacing. It comes to the surface. We have, it was there when we were born. We knew it. And over years, we have pushed it down and down and down and down and down and down. And what spiritual practice really is, is the chipping away of the layers on top of that, the stripping of it, and it surfaces. And it feels like something has been given to us as if we've earned it, when in fact, yeah, we've earned it because we've done the work. Okay? Yeah. Uh, the idea of, of whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever actions we take affect everything, everything and everyone that we're here with on the planet is so is so big and it's so um, contrary to what we grow up with. Mm -hmm. And uh, it occurs to me that in order to be able to really integrate that, you, you have, there's a, um, it feels like you have to really own how powerful you are. Absolutely. Because without that understanding of that power that you have. It, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, it begins with a declaration of your authority. And all authority lies in you. All authority lies in you. You know, when the Declaration of Independence says we possess inalienable rights, which means no one can dictate those rights, yea or nay, to us. Okay? And you're right, from early on, and I said this earlier tonight, this culture of ours is not conducive for happiness, well-being, or wholeness, because from early on we are fragmented by this culture, we are broken down by this culture, and everything is about becoming more. I mean, the whole educational system is about becoming more, becoming better, becoming different, okay, and so forth. Our entire social structure says to us as children, what do we say to children in our society? You know, be seen but not heard. You have no value until you get to, the, to this place. But from the Buddhist perspective, Buddha is born at that moment of birth, a fully enlightened being. And <clears throat> you've heard me talk about this both as a parent and as a teacher. When you take the root word of parent or to parent, it means uh, <coughs> to bring forth. So parenting is not about 
creating our children in our own image and likeness. It's about creating a conducive environment for that already whole and enlightened being to become more and more of who they already are. And that's what we call love. That's the meaning of love, to love someone for who they are, not who we think they should be. We devote our lives to trying to shape them into that image. You know, that's also the meaning as, as I interpret it of the commandment about, you know, graven images. You know, we create these images of people and stuff. So no one can, you know, no one can give you what I just said. So you, yes, part of the spiritual path, somewhere along that path and ritually in Zen, it technically is supposed to happen at the moment you ask to receive the precepts to enter the Bodhisattva's path. You are making a declaration that I am a Bodhisattva and that I intend to live as a Bodhisattva in the world, a force of nature, okay, and so forth. So how do you do that when you have been conditioned to think of yourself otherwise? There's only one way to do it, and it sounds so simple, and yet it is the most difficult thing in 43 years of working with people and attempting to, you know, convince them of this. And that is by doing it, by standing on your own two feet. You know, I love to use, you've heard me do this before, I love to use the example of what happened on July 4th, 1776. When those men stepped out of that building with that document that they had finished, the British were only 50 miles away en route to burn down that city, arrest those men, and execute them. They were, they, they were going to lose all their wealth, their property, and everything. They had no clue as to what was coming, as to whether we would ever really be a, a, a new nation. And yet, they stood on that step and declared otherwise independence from tyranny independence from tyranny. We call that a declaration, where you stand on your own two feet and you have no evidence, no, no proof of the outcome, but you make the declaration anyway. And so, yes, somewhere on the spiritual path, we begin with questions and we begin by searching, and then one day we get this sense, yes, the next step is to stand on my own two feet and just declare it. I, you know, own my authority. I am a force for nature, and you are. At that moment, a transformation takes place. There is a wonderful uh, quote by Goethe. Go How do you say his name? Goethe. Goethe, you know, where he talks about this, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, at that moment... When a human being filled with all this doubt and, and low self-esteem stands up and says, no, I am committed, he says the whole universe stops and begins to prepare to bring to that human being providence steps in everything they need to fulfill that because it's so damn unusual. Okay? God hears that declaration.
because most of our declaration is, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, and so forth. So yes, it begins with ownership of your authority. And stop blaming everybody else as to the reason why you can't be strong. You know, someone else once said, you know, our dissatisfaction is not because we shoot high and miss, but we keep shooting low and hit. Okay? You see? So, you know, yeah, we got, we got to muster up the courage. You know, the, the, you know, you hear a lot about that occasionally in the discussion in politics. Profile, where's the profile of courage? Where's the profile in courage? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mason. Anyone else? Motion. It, um, I experienced a big change in motivation when I came to realize that my training and practice wasn't just for my own enlightenment, but that it's for the enlightenment of all the sentient beings, but also that the survival of the world. You know, we live in a world that we can destroy ourselves. We have the ability, you know, it used to be nuclear weapons, now all we have to do is pollute the air enough. And we can destroy ourselves. And maybe the people sitting in this room, if they were to reach enlightenment, would prevent the, the destruction of the earth. You don't know that. Could be you, or you, or you, or me. Could be any of us. So, so the motivation to practice, why should you come here? Why should you meditate? Why should you study? Because it might be the saving of the earth. It might be the saving of the world. And, and that, for me, became a much bigger motivation than, well, maybe I'll be enlightened. I would only change that one way. I would eliminate the word might and say it will be. I am convinced of that. One of my greatest inspirations, as you've heard me refer to him time and time again, is the work of Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk in the Catholic Church. And Merton writes in one of his books where he is convinced that it is that group of people on the planet committed to this way, committed to live this way, that is protecting from the planet from entire annihilation. And I'm convinced of that. I am convinced. And, you know, the saying goes, never underestimate the power of one or a small group of people. Because that group of people with the right intention and the right motivation, you know, it's, it's a small, what's that thing on the ship that stares it called? It's, it's a, a small piece of metal compared to the giant ship that steers the ship. That steers the ship. So own your power, people, and stop messing around. As your intention becomes clearly defined and your priorities are set in a way to support your intention, your focus narrows and self-consciousness, including worryment about the past or the future, rooted in fear, evaporates. Your awareness merges with your life actions, and the illusions of separation begins to lose its grip on your consciousness. You feel a sense of personal mastery 
no matter the circumstance or situation at hand. And your life begins to feel so intrinsically rewarding that although the challenge may be difficult, a sense surfaces that in the final reckoning, all is well, all is well. Probably in one of the very first talks I gave, it was before a group of Catholics and um, can't recall exactly what the discussion was, but I remember saying to uh, a good lot of them that was filled with doubt about the future and doubt about you know peace on earth and what have you, and I remember saying to them, of one thing I am absolutely convinced, the God you claim to believe in created all of this to work, not to fail. And that is what I am saying here. That part of the motivation in my life is the absolute conviction that as dark as it has gotten, and you know, we kind of think, you know, those of us living right now, I mean, I lived in the 60s during the Vietnam War. Uh, my parents lived through the Depression and the World War. Their parents, another World War. We tend to think of our darkness as the darkest one. But this is not true. Dark is dark, no matter what generation, no matter what century. We tend to think of what is going on in this country while when you think of what's going on overseas and nations with a darkness that is unimaginable to us going on. Syria, Africa, and so on. But somehow I am convinced that in the final reckoning, all is well. Light will shine through the dark. But always remember something. And this is where, again, ego gets us distracted. The, the light comes from nowhere but the dark. It does not exist apart from the dark. It comes out of the darkness. So let it get dark. Because eventually the light will shine through. And hopefully this time remain lit because of your effort, because of your conviction, because of your motivation. So as they're passing around, a few announcements I'd like to make before we bring the evening to a close. If you would like a copy of this presentation, uh, MEO has a clipboard where you can write your name and email, print it so I can read it, and so forth. Be glad to send you a PDF copy uh, via the email of the presentation. So, as I mentioned earlier, there are hundreds of versions of the Bodhisattva's vow. And as I was exploring all the many versions as such, I came across one of the Beastie Boys versions and liked it and thought it would be good for us to recite together tonight. You can just sit it down there. So let us recite the Bodhisattva's vow. As I develop the awakening mind, I praise the Buddhas as they shine. I bow before you as I travel my path to join your ranks. I make my full the task. Respect the Shantideva and 
without them there would be no place to learn what I've seen. There's nothing here that's not been said before, but I put it down now so that I'll be sure to solidify my own views, and I'll be glad if it helps anyone else out too. If others disrespect me or give me flack, I'll stop and think before I react. Knowing that going through insecure stages, I'll take the opportunity to exercise patience. I'll see it as a chance to help the other person, nip it in the bud before it can worsen. A chance for me to be strong because I think the Buddhists are and as I praise and respect the good they've done, knowing all love can conquer hate in every situation, we need other people in order to create the circumstances for the learning that we're here to generate. Situations that bring up our deepest fears, so we can work to release them until they're clear. Therefore, it only makes sense to thank our enemies despite their Welcome to keep that and recite it each day. As it always is for me, sincerely, it has been a privilege to be with you tonight. And I thank you for taking the time out of your day. You probably spent it a lot enjoying the nice day and still thought of coming tonight, and I am grateful for that. Tomorrow morning, the monks and I will meet for Sunday morning circle and you're welcome to come back and experience the quiet of the Zendo meditation and the offering of the sutras and a cup of tea with us afterwards. And that is at um, 9.30? 9 o'clock tomorrow. Next month, as I mentioned, um, in addition to uh, the Zen chat uh, for next month, uh, the second Saturday, February 10th, I will be conducting a... Uh, relationship seminar that will be the 36th time I've presented that seminar on creating sustainable and fulfilling relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's for everyone. It's for parents. It's for single people, couples, uh, teachers, uh, employers. So uh, consider registering for it online and joining me for the day, uh, February 10th from 9 to 4. Anything else, Emil? I can't think of anything, Roshan. So before we all get up and depart from each other, 
I thought we'd get quiet for a moment and bring into mind everyone who is dealing with this illness and all forms of illness today. There is both the illness of the body and the illness of the mind. For everyone dealing with chronic illness, let us bring them into our thoughts and into our hearts and wish them peace and wish them cessation from their suffering and wish them rest and relaxation. And if there is no cure for what they carry within them, the burden they shoulder, let them feel not alone. So that truly by the power and the truth of our efforts tonight and our intention to live as bodhisattvas, may they and all beings everywhere be free of all sorrow and all forms of suffering and the causes of their sorrow and suffering. May the Dharma of loving kindness and compassion fill them with contentment and a sense of wellness. And may their hearts be filled with peace knowing that somewhere a small group of people in Chemung, New Jersey are thinking about them and will not forget them. May this truly be our prayer. May this truly always be our intention. Everyone, please rise. Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything, everyone, is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Thank you. Good night. Don't leave.